Welcome to Beyond the Boardroom with me, Kieran Paul. Having recently merged our two previous publications into one to make Insightia Monthly, we're excited now to tell you about the April edition. So joining me today to open it up and tell us all about it is the editor of the magazine, Rebecca Sherritt. So welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Kieran. Happy to be here. It's been a really big month for climate change news with the SEC revealing its much-anticipated climate policy. Rebecca, can you just outline what this new policy is and why is it so important? Well, after over a year of waiting, we finally discovered what the SEC will expect from US public companies in relation to climate change reporting. And this is something we explore more in the lead article of the April magazine. Everyone's been waiting with bated breath for the SEC's new policy, ever since former acting chair Alison Heron-Lee announced in March last year that the Commission was seeking feedback on what climate-related information companies should and could be making public. So March 21st, when the policy was revealed, was a big day. Going forward, the SEC expects companies to feature robust reporting on climate-related risks and opportunities in their annual reporting, in line with the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Recommendations. If a company discloses its climate transition plan, something which has become increasingly more common in the past year, that company will be expected to disclose specific metrics and targets that are TCFD-aligned, as well as whether their decarbonisation strategy relies on carbon offsets or renewable energy targets. This is a particularly interesting part of the rule, as many companies in carbon-intensive sectors in particular have been criticised for failing to reduce their emissions and instead overly relying on carbon offsets, primarily through the planting of trees or carbon capture storage, to cancel out their emissions by simply reducing emissions elsewhere. Some investors have argued that, through this method, companies are failing to reduce their emissions and failing, therefore, to take the proper action to actually decarbonise. So having disclosures firmly state how aligned a company is on carbon offsets can help investors see whether decarbonisation plans actually involve a reduction in emissions or simply involve offsetting elsewhere. And we can almost assume that the SEC are likely to bring out more ESG-related policy soon. Is there any in particular you imagine seeing? Yeah, the SEC has revealed that quite a few policies might be coming out in the coming year or two, as well as EO1 disclosure possibly becoming mandatory. The regulator might also be making human rights reporting mandatory. So ESG has really become a core consideration for the regulator. But the part of the policy that most investors and our listeners will be interested in is its stance on scope three emissions. Yeah, that's right. Of the many investors I've spoken with in the past few weeks, they've all been very supportive of the SEC's proposed policy. But one big question remains regarding scope three emissions, which specifically relate to emissions derived from a company's value chain. The SEC's wording surrounding scope three disclosure is arguably pretty ambiguous and has the potential to create some reporting loopholes. Under the SEC's new policy, all US-listed companies are required to disclose their Scope 1 and 2 emissions, which cover direct emissions from a company's owned or controlled sources, and indirect emissions generated from purchased electricity on an annual basis. But Scope 3 reporting is a bit more complicated. 
companies need only disclose their scope three emissions if they're considered to be material, or where a company has publicly set and disclosed scope three emissions reduction targets. Small companies with a public float of less than 250 million will be exempt from this rule. As you can probably guess, the question on everyone's lips is what exactly constitutes as material emissions? It's a well-known fact that scope three emissions make up the majority of a company's carbon footprint. So one could certainly argue that scope three emissions are always material. Conversely, a company in an industry that isn't so carbon intensive, say the commercial sector, for example, could argue that its emissions are small compared to more carbon intensive sectors like oil and gas. So its scope three emissions could still arguably be immaterial. When speaking with investors about their thoughts on the SEC's scope three policy, Zevin Asset Management gave a pretty interesting take that the owners shouldn't solely be on companies to decide if emissions are material. Investors should also have a seat at the table and decide with boards where and when a company's emissions are material and therefore whether they should form part of the company's reporting. But regardless of the approach, it would certainly be beneficial for the SEC to update its policy after its 60-day open comment period to make clear its definition of materiality and who can decide on what is material. And of course, I'm interviewing you now, but you interviewed the environmental advocacy organisation Client Earth. How was that? Yeah, Client Earth sued the UK oil and gas firm Shell for failing to adequately prepare for the climate transition. Shell had a particularly rough time of it last year, with a court in the Netherlands ordering it to quit its emissions by 45% compared to 2019 levels. And now Shell's facing further legal action with Client Earth saying that the company's failure to address the climate crisis is also a breach of its duties under UK law. We were happy to speak with Sophie Marginac, Client Earth's Climate Accountability Lead, who shared with us why Client Earth targeted Shell with this campaign, her thoughts on whether more oil and gas firms might face similar lawsuits in the future, and how investors can make sure that a company's climate transition strategy is sufficiently robust. And Rebecca, what else do we have to look forward to in this issue? Our second lead article this month, written by Features Editor Jason Booth, explores the evolution of activist engagements in South Korea. The number of domestically driven activist demands has seen a sharp increase in recent years in the region, driven in part by increasingly vocal retail investors. In contrast, the only current activism by foreign investors in South Korea is primarily ESG-related and led by Dutch pension fund APG, which wants to see more Korean firms reducing their emissions. With newly appointed South Korean president Yoon Suk-yeol promising to provide investors with more of a voice at shareholder meetings, activist engagements could be subject to significant changes in the coming month. We also examine why Stanley Black & Decker is vulnerable to activism, what proposed 13D filing deadline changes might mean for activists, and why we are experiencing a dwindling in short-seller campaigns. And given that we are at the start of a proxy season, have you noticed any interesting trends? Definitely. Although the proxy season, like you say, has just started, the two racial equity audits subject to a vote at Apple and Maximus have both already won majority support. The resolutions, both filed by the Service Employees International Union, asked both companies to commission audits analysing their impact on non-white stakeholders and communities of colour, and won 53.6% and 64.2% support respectively. This is really impressive, 
especially for a relatively new type of proposal that was first filed only last year. JP Morgan also revealed late last month its intention to commission a third-party racial equity audit in response to a similar proposal being filed by SOC Investment Group and SHARE. So companies are clearly taking notice of the support that these proposals are getting from investors, and they're aware of the need to take action. There's still a lot more racial equity audit proposals coming up to a vote soon as well, at companies like Lowe's, CVS Health and Johnson & Johnson. So it will be interesting to see how many more win the favour of investors. Either way, it's already proven to be a record-breaking proxy season for diversity, equity and inclusion concerns. Thank you, Rebecca, and I'll see you in a month's time to discuss the next issue. Thanks, Kieran. Looking forward to discussing the May issue. So that's it from Rebecca. And if you haven't already, make sure to listen to an interview I did with Bruce David Klein, the director of the much-acclaimed HBO documentary Icon, The Wrestler's Billionaire. Bruce lets us know all about having inside access to Carl Icon's day-to-day life and the challenges the filming brought, and as well the surprising things he learned. Just listen to this clip. He wants to set the record straight. It drives him crazy if somebody says, Carl Icon believes XYZ. Now, he doesn't mind criticism. As you see, there's plenty of criticism of him in the film. What he minds is not being able to come back at the criticism. And I think that that forum live on TV, him versus Bill, was a classic. It just fit right into who Carl is, which is loving a good debate, wanting to express why he thinks the way he does. And it really, really was an extraordinary moment in so many ways. So simply scroll down and listen to the previous episode, which was the interview with Bruce David Klein. As for today's episode, we've come to an end. Make sure you subscribe to Insightia Monthly by simply emailing subscriptions at insightia.com. And don't forget the plethora of free special reports available to you on our website as well. I'm Kieran Paul. Thank you for listening.